episode 105, Spoils of War. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the April 21st, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. One of the unfortunate byproducts of war is the ransacking and looting of homes and businesses by invading armies, and the American Civil War was no exception. Many of these items have found their way into museums over the years. Join Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and me as we take a look at a quilt looted during the American Civil War that just recently has been reunited with its history. And then, for today's episode of Six Degrees of William Allen White, we're celebrating Earth Day by connecting the Sage of Emporia to this worldwide celebration. Did you figure out how to connect Mr. White to Earth Day? Find out how your answer stacks up when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, spoils of war. Good afternoon, Rebecca. I'm Morgan. And today we're going to talk about a quilt that's in our collection, and I'll remind listeners that they can go see a picture of this quilt on our website, kshs.org. But for those who haven't seen it, can you describe the quilt for us? Yeah, well, it's um, kind of quilt-shaped. It's, <laughs> it's quilt-like. It's quilt-like. <laughs> it's rectangular and big and flat, and um, it's a white background fabric, and over the top part of the quilt, there are stitched um, basically what looks like a grid of narrow strips of fabric set on the diagonal, kind of forming diamonds. And inside each diamond, there are cut out pieces of chintz fabric in floral, mostly floral designs that are stitched or appliqued onto the white background. Um, and chintz was a fabric. This, this whole quilt was kind of a style that was really popular before the Civil War in the United States. And the chintz fabrics are really beautiful. They're multicolored. It's, they're very intricate. And the whole effect is pretty elegant. Okay, and um, I understand this this quilt has a pretty interesting story about, about how it came to the museum. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Well, um, back during the Civil War, there was a man <laughs> named George Holyoke. He was a soldier um, with an Illinois regiment, and he was in the South somewhere in an <laughs> army camp, and he spied another soldier using this really beautiful quilt in a dirty, muddy, awful army camp. Uh, you can imagine all the, the, you know, rain and mud and campfire, and these men probably hadn't bathed in weeks because um, they were a pretty active uh, regiment. The one he was in was the 45th Illinois. Anyway, he bought it off this other soldier, and he sent it back home to his wife in Illinois because he felt it was just too elegant to be wasted in <laughs> such a manner. And the presumption always was that it was spoils of war, that somebody had basically stolen or plundered mm -hmm. this quilt. And so Holyoke saved it. He sent back back to Illinois with his wife. Um, he survived the war, and he became a Congregationalist minister. And they eventually, he and his wife, moved to Kansas. And um, let's see, I think he was a minister in Axtell, and then Topeka is where he died. He was a minister in Topeka, Kansas, when he died in 1895. Okay. It's amazing that you would be thinking about a quilt and while you're in a dirty old yeah, camp. Yeah, I know. Well, he must have been a sensitive guy because he became a minister, yeah. and yeah. so he must have, you know, 
thought about that kind of thing. <laughs> and I understand the donor had an unusual request at the time the quilt was donated. What was that? Yeah, well, Mrs. Holyoke was the donor, mm -hmm. um, and she survived George by about 30 years. Oh, so wow. not too long before she died, she gave the quilt to us, and this was in 1924, and she asked us to find the original owners. And <laughs> that would have been impossible for any other quilt, but this particular quilt has about 50 names written on it in black ink. And you can still read the names. Um, most of them, um, well, uh, the most common names are Melachamp or Melachamp. Uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, <laughs> and Rivers, and there's some people called Hinson, and you know they have different first names. But so there's 50 names on the quilt, and she and apparently her husband always felt like it was just a real shame that this beautiful piece had gotten separated from its family. Yeah, that seems pretty difficult considering the donor wasn't sure how or where it was acquired. Did we ever try to find out? We did. Um, back in the 1930s, the staff did. They were going on the assumption that Mrs. Holyoke was remembering correctly when she said her husband got the quilt in either Louisiana or Mississippi. And the staff confirmed that the 45th Illinois actually was in those two states during the course of the war. So they kind of concentrated their efforts on Louisiana and Mississippi. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, you have to understand Back in the 1930s, it would have been hard to even get a phone book from either one of those states in yeah. Kansas. Nowadays, we have the Internet, and we have all this you know, really great stuff that's digitized, but it was really tough for them to do any legwork. And you know, whenever they'd see a, a name that was one of the surnames that was on the quilt, they'd try and write that person. Um, they didn't, you know, it was really pretty much an impossible task yeah. at the time. And, of course, they didn't locate um, the original people. What kind of documents were they looking at trying to find? Well, um, the I can't, there's a reference in our files. Somebody saw, uh, like, a government official from Louisiana who had the last name Rivers, and he was interviewed oh. in a newspaper. So they wrote to the <laughs> government, the state offices, <laughs> And the man wrote back and said, uh, these are not my relatives, I, not my ancestors. I don't know these people. Oh, like, so it was kind of just random. Yeah, you know, it was kind of random, yeah, because it, you know, it was, just seemed like an insurmountable task. Yeah. So did the descendants whose families' names are on the quilt ever find out about it? Yeah, actually, they did. That's the really cool yeah. story. Um, thank goodness for the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what happened was... Uh, this quilt has attracted a lot of attention from quilt historians because of its story. It's really mm -hmm. an amazing story you know, that this guy rescued this quilt. Um, and so it's been written about occasionally over the years. And a couple of quilt historians back around the year 2000 or in the 1990s, they wrote an article about it and they hired an independent researcher to try and figure out where these names were from. Uh, nowadays, when I go out on Ancestry.com, everything's, you know, the census records are digitized. Right. Um, if I, they weren't in the 1930s, yeah. <laughs> no computers then. Um, if I enter Melachamp in um, Ancestry.com, I get a whole list of names and they come up for South Carolina. All the same location in South Carolina in 1860. And that's where this family, this quilt ended up being from. It's from the Melachamp and the Rivers and all these names, Hinson, they all are from this island called James Island, which is right off of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and James Island is pretty small. It's about nine miles long, four miles mm -hmm. wide. Um, you can find it today. You can look on Google Maps. Um, the really cool thing, I think, <laughs> about James Island is that Fort Sumter was like within spitting distance of James Island. So these people had front row seats yes, to the Civil War. I mean, it's wow. really amazing. And they were all living together on this island. 
Um, they, um, the island, the story about the island is really pretty tragic because um, early on it was it was raided and there were a lot of skirmishes because it's pretty close, you know, yeah. close to Charleston, Fort Sumter. That's really the, the hotbed. Yeah, that's what happens to me in front row seats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you get caught in the crossfire. Yeah. Um, so at one point they were evacuated from the island. The Confederates took over all of their, the Confederate Army did. And of course, since the Confederate Army was living there mm -hmm. or barracked there, that was also a place that was targeted for attacks. Sherman's March to the Sea went through there. I mean, at any point during the war, this family, we don't know exactly which family owned this quilt, but mm -hmm. whichever family did own it, they, at any point during the war, they could have lost it, either by uh, a raid, you know, the Confederates could have confiscated mm -hmm. it because they took over all their plantation homes and everything. Um, they, because they moved, the families moved to the mainland um, and Sherman's March to the Sea came through. I mean, it could have happened there. We don't know exactly how George Holyoke got the quilt. If, if it was really in Louisiana or Mississippi, it could have been from another regiment that right. plundered it at some earlier point in the war. Or Holyoke was with this regiment that went through that area on Sherman's March to the Sea where he, you know, Sherman, Sherman was charged with a scorched earth policy. They plundered and destroyed everything. So we don't really know how he acquired it, but we do now have a connection to the, to the family descendants. And the Melichamps, because they read this article on this quilt, um, that identified their family as the original owners, mm -hmm. probably some Melichamps owned it. Uh, we've been in, con in contact with them and um, they've provided us family histories. They told us a lot of history about James Island uh, during the war, which, you know, I just mm -hmm. described to you, right. not a great place to be <laughs> or anywhere around there. Um, so they really think it's, it's a wonderful thing to know that this quilt has survived in a public collection and it's from their families. Yeah. They, you know, they don't know any of the circumstances of why it was made or what happened to it during the war, except that it's been saved. And so much else of their families' what belongings were lost. Well, yeah, it's amazing that it lasted. They made it yeah. through the war. Yeah. And okay, great. Well, one last question. And this quilt has another distinction in our collection. What is that? Yeah, it's uh, the first quilt to ever enter our collection. That's amazing. And how many do we I have know. now? We have almost 300 quilts in our collection. And this was number one in 1924. And, uh, and I'm sure they took it in in the 20s because of that connection to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, quilts were just a little ordinary back then. Ah. You know? That's the kind of thing where in the museum field, they didn't start to think about ordinary everyday objects from people's lives until later in the 20th century. Okay. So. So this was really neat. I mean, it had that great connection to the Civil War. And then, uh, gosh, 80 years later, we figured out the story. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us today, Rebecca. You're welcome. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of Bully Mallon White. Joining me today is Museum Director Bob Keckeisen. Hello. And Museum Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And a welcome back is in order after you took a hopefully refreshing trip to Greece. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm ready to pack up and move. So. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. No, but Kansas in the spring. It's, it's know, very nice, it's, yeah. yeah. And it has yeah. been a pretty nice yeah. one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so far. We need no tornadoes. Storms, I know we haven't very yeah. very thunderstorms. As long as the wind stays down, I guess that's the main thing. You know, it, it seems like every time it warms up, 
in Kansas, it's like the wind's trying to match the temperature. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like yeah. 60 degrees and 60 miles an hour. <laughs> well, so I'm sure you're both that you both know tomorrow's Earth Day. Yep. And not only is it Earth Day, but it's the 40th anniversary of the celebration. So we thought it'd be fun to try to connect our favorite Kansan to the day set aside to raise awareness about the environment and saving our planet. Yep. So, Bob, could you give us some background on Earth Day? Sure. Well, Earth Day began in 1970, and it was a day to raise awareness about the Earth's environment and, in the words of one of its founders, to uh, force the issue of the environment into the political dialogue of the country. And that quote uh, was from then U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin, uh, who's generally considered to be one of the founders of Earth Day. And he was a uh, United States Senator who was very concerned about the environment and kind of concerned that uh, it really wasn't in the political realm. And this is 19, this is, you know, 1969, around in there. And this is before the Environmental Protection Agency had been established. So uh, there were various federal agencies, but they hadn't been put together under one big umbrella yet. And so he was trying to raise awareness for this. And his idea in late 1969 was to create a teach-in event. Uh, to raise awareness. And that's a, kind of a play on, you know, back in the 60s when they're doing protests, you had sit-ins. Well, they're going to have a teach-in and teach people about the environment. So he recruited a couple of other uh, U.S. representatives and senators to sponsor this. And they went around and gave speeches about it. And they actually founded a nonprofit organization called Environmental Teach-In, which was nonpartisan nonprofit. And so they're going along giving these speeches, and the movement got a big boost in September of 1969 when the New York Times ran a front-page story that read in part, Rising concern about the environmental crisis is sweeping the nation's campuses with an intensity that may be on its way to eclipsing student discontent over the war in Vietnam. A national day of observance of environmental problems analogous to the mass demonstrations on Vietnam is being planned for next spring when a nationwide environmental teaching coordinated from the office of Senator Gaylord Nelson is planned. So all of a sudden people are like, here's the New York Times front page saying, hey, next spring there's going to be this big deal about the environment. So student groups began forming and a group of students at Columbia University in New York agreed to head up the New York planning. And their big break came when Mayor John Lindsay agreed to shut down Fifth Avenue for them, for their celebration. Wow. <laughs> uh, and he also made Central Park available for that first Earth Day, which would have been April 22nd of 1970. Well, the crowd that showed up was estimated at more than a million. And because it's New York, wow. and because New York is the headquarters of ABC, CBS, NBC, Time, Newsweek, uh, New York Times, they all covered it extensively because there's a million people in Central Park. So it's a huge deal. So it got all this publicity. And so Earth Day was off and running. And as you mentioned, it's the 40th anniversary of Earth Day. And although a lot of people thought this is going to be kind of one of those you know, flash in the pan one day, ah, yeah, we all care about the earth and then forget about it. Uh, it's really shown a, a pretty surprising staying power. So tomorrow, Earth Day, and so get out and enjoy it. So will there be a million people in Central Park tomorrow? I don't know. 40th anniversary? I don't know whether they've got any big anniversary plans. What do you think Central Park looked like after a million people? <laughs> <laughs> did it look earth-friendly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or did it look like Woodstock? When they yeah. there? <laughs> Okay, well, thanks, Bob. Yeah. And, Nikayla, did you have time to work on a solution while you were sunning yourself in Greece? Uh, yeah, I, I had a little help. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as Bob
have mentioned, um, one of the founders of Earth Day um, is usually recognized as Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson. And in 1963, Nelson went on a conservation tour with President John F. Kennedy. During Kennedy's uh, presidential term, he had the opportunity to have contact with the head of the House Agriculture Committee, committee who at the time was Representative Bob Dole, who we all know as mm -hmm. a famous Kansan. Mm -hmm. uh, when Bob Dole first ran for the U.S. Senate, one of his pivotal campaign events was a dinner for most of the Kansas Republican leaders, and the dinner was hosted by William Lindsay White, who we know is the son of William Allen White. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty cool. direct connection. Yeah. We uh, we need to do Six Degrees yeah. of Bob Dole. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you can get to a lot of folks through Bob Dole. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Bob Dole. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we get sick and tired of William Allen White, we'll yeah. just use Bob Dole. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll never get sick and tired of William. <laughs> no. He's our man. <laughs> okay, Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Well, our next podcast will be in two weeks on May 5th, or as many people around the world know it, Cinco de Mayo, which, contrary to popular belief, is not Mexican Independence Day. That's in <laughs> September. So here's your chance not only to figure out what Cinco de Mayo celebrates, but also how to connect it to William Allen White. You mean it's not just an excuse to drink Mexican beer? And well, there's that salsa. too. <laughs> salsa, mm, chips and salsa. Yum. <laughs> okay, so if you think you can connect the Sage of Emporia with one of the world's most misunderstood commemorative days, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 105, Spoils of War. To see photos of the Civil War quilt, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. If you're new to our podcast and would like to hear more, you can listen to every episode all the way back to our very first podcast in April of 2006 by going to our website, kshs.org, and clicking on Podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Kansas Historical Society. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr stops by to take a look at an 18th century rifle. 18th century? What's a colonial-era rifle doing in Kansas, you ask? Join us in two weeks to find out. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real people, real stories.